Hello, and welcome to the Corporate Activist Podcast. I'm Siri Kalsa, and I'm delighted to have you join me today for another great conversation about how businesses can engage on social and political issues to lead positive change in the world. Today, my guest is Emily Chan. Emily is the Executive Vice President and U.S. West Lead of Social Impact and Sustainability for Edelman. She's a sustainability expert with a focus on corporate strategy and helps organizations align communication strategies with growth goals. For nearly 20 years, she has consulted with clients from startups to the Fortune 50 in the food, tech, consumer products, furniture, and energy sectors. Emily and her team lead advisory services to help clients research, create, and execute impactful strategies and programs that deliver results, as well as award-winning, fully integrated social purpose communications campaigns. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So, Emily, I'm really excited to have you join us today on the Corporate Activist Podcast because you are helping companies become corporate activists, and this is exactly what we want to see more of in the world. So I'm really excited to have the conversation and learn about what you're doing and how it works. But let's get to know you a little bit. So can you tell me a little bit about your background, your education, and what sparked your interest in sustainability and corporate activism? Yeah, absolutely. My background is in sustainability and the environment. So I have an undergraduate degree in natural resources and forestry quite a unique major. There are only five people in my major at the time (laughs) I graduated. And I went on from there to get my MBA. My work experience has spanned the gamut from working in forest conservation policy right out of undergrad to working in management consulting for sustainability initiatives to working for clean energy companies. And most recently at Edelman, I have been focusing on communication, stakeholder engagement and advisory services around ESG. I would say what initially got me interested in this space was actually a college class that I took. It was a class about the intersection of environment, people and politics. And it was just one of those moments where I realized that I was really interested in the intersection of science and humanities. And really that has been the unifying theme across the work that I've done over the years of bridging the knowledge and advances around science and sustainability with the people side, whether that's policy, economics, communication, stakeholder engagement, et cetera. So that's really informed my path. Did you actually ever work in in forests? So I haven't ever been what they call a quote unquote dirt forester. (laughs) A lot of my colleagues from undergrad work in the field for agencies like the U.S. Forest Service or Fish and Wildlife Service, but I never did that. I went straight to working in forest policy in Washington, D.C., specifically on the farm bill. That's one of the first things that I really sunk my teeth into in terms of how the government was incentivizing private family forest landowners to conduct environmental stewardship on their lands. So 
Well, I was never professionally in the field. I did take a lot of field work courses in undergrad, which mm. were absolutely the best part of uh, <laughs> college. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, we said at the top that you work now with Edelman, and I'm a big fan of particularly the Edelman Trust Barometer, but I don't know that everyone knows what Edelman does. So I'd love if you could just give us a little introduction about what is Edelman and how do you work with your clients? And then if we can dig into the trust barometer, I'd love it. <laughs> Absolutely. So for those who don't know Edelman, we are known primarily as the world's largest public relations firm and communications agency. We have over 6,000 employees working in more than 60 offices throughout the world. And we absolutely do the communications advisory work that we are famous for all the way from media relations to digital campaigns to research and analytics. We have quite a large breadth of offerings. I sit in a practice called social impact and sustainability. We are solely focused on working with clients to develop, define, articulate, and engage around social issues and sustainability. So I'm really lucky to be part of that practice where we are focusing on helping companies move the needle on the most important issues of the day, whether that is climate and environment or things like health equity, diversity, equity, inclusion, et cetera. So that's a little bit about Edelman. The trust barometer is definitely our calling card. It's what Edelman is most well known for. And it's a survey that we've run every year for more than 20 years. And it's designed to measure the evolution of trust across four institutions, business, media, government, and NGOs. And we have the flagship trust barometer report that comes out every year. We launch it at Davos, the World Economic Forum in January. But we also have several different cuts of the trust barometer that focus on specific things, whether that's employee engagement, climate, or topics specific to CEOs, for example. So we have such a breadth of data and insight through that process, and it is global. So this year's trust barometer surveyed more than 32,000 respondents across 28 countries. So it's not just US focused. We really have a lot of insights from across the globe, and that is very powerful data that we can share with society, our clients, and anyone who's interested, really. Yeah, and I imagine it's perhaps one of the things that has informed your position because I know it sort of came on my radar a few years ago when there was findings in the report about the role of business in society. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that trend that we've been seeing where trust has sort of transferred from perhaps governments or perhaps NGOs to actually businesses to the point where I think this year, a lot of the respondents are saying the person that they trust most is their CEO, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. Yes, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. The trust trend has been moving away, unfortunately, from institutions like media, government, and NGOs for various reasons. 
And I think for the third year in a row now, business is the most trusted institution, especially when it comes to addressing social issues, which is very interesting. It's counterintuitive because you would think that the other institutions are the ones that are the most trusted, but it's in fact the opposite. So that really means that business has the opportunity and the responsibility to lead on a lot of these issues. And a lot of employees get our most trusting of information from their own company, from their own CEO. So that has a lot of implications when companies are deciding how to communicate things specific to the area that I work most closely in, which is climate. We have a lot of interesting data that's come out of the climate cut of the trust barometer that tells us things are very complicated. So for example, seven in 10 respondents agree that we have to move faster to address climate change. That's probably pretty self-explanatory, but over half of people lack the confidence in government leaders to drive this change, especially when you think about COP28 coming up, which is all focused on government and policymakers moving and taking action that does not bode well. But at the same time, 64% of companies are thought of as doing mediocre or worse in keeping their climate commitments. And 60% of people surveyed said that they find it too difficult to find trustworthy information about climate change. So what do all these numbers mean? It really boils down to the fact that we're in a crisis of trust when it comes to climate communications, trust in those institutions, but also, you know, this is really what we see reflected across other social issues as well. So it's a really pivotal time for companies to shore up trust with a variety of stakeholders and really be careful and thoughtful about what they say, how they say it, and who they say it to, so that they can build trust and build momentum for the action that we need to see on climate and some of these other critical issues like education and collaboration partnerships. It's really fascinating. And I'm so glad that you guys are doing this because I feel like it's such valuable information. And and I think those of us who are in the sort of American media circus, it's very easy to think, well, this is just sort of a US focused thing and it's being driven by divisive politics. But actually, you know, we're seeing this internationally. And I think there's obviously there's been a decline in democratic values and sort of all over the places. And and so people are turning to what they know best, which is their employer, because even the media, I think, has also been something where confidence has really plummeted <laughs> as well. And so it does then give a huge amount of responsibility to the corporate sector to take this on, not only to engage with their stakeholders internally, but you know, externally as well. Absolutely. That is very important in terms of engagement. And I think you alluded to the fact that there has been quite a bit of angst, particularly in the U.S. market around ESG. And that is something that is mostly U.S.-based, 
which I think is fortunate because it's causing a lot of distraction. The fact is that a lot of companies, most companies are simply just moving forward with the commitments they've already made on ESG, despite some of the noise, because a lot of it is endemic to the US, unfortunately, but the rest of the world is moving on despite the challenges with the other pieces of the puzzle, whether that's media, governments, et cetera, the business community globally is moving forward on these issues, which to me gives me a lot of hope and optimism that there are going to be further advances made. So you've been working in this field for a while, and I'm curious how you've seen what used to be the corporate social responsibility arm of a business that did some nice things for kids and it was sort of like a side program to the kind of much more engaged, much more active sense of corporate engagement that we're seeing on social and political issues these days. And I'm, I'm just curious how you've noticed that evolution happen. Yeah, it's been a pretty dramatic change over the last 20 years since I've been working in this area. I think in the early days, it was very much like you said, it was donations, it was maybe some volunteering here or there. A lot of it was driven by CEOs or the board's pet projects. So maybe they had a personal interest in the arts or giving to their local community that would drive a lot of the, the CSR programs for companies that would drive most of it. I think what we've seen over the last several years is really a professionalization of the function of CSR within an organization. I mean, the first step for a lot of companies was hiring either a chief impact officer, head of their foundation, or a chief sustainability officer. When I started in this field, it was very rare for companies to have that role. And now that is absolutely commonplace and something right. that most companies have. Yeah, and part of the C-suite now. Yeah, exactly, yeah. which is great because these decisions are getting embedded into the way that companies do business. It's not just a nice to have, right. icing on the cake, but it's really part of the core operations of the business. And with that function, companies are becoming more rigorous about how they design their programs, which is great. They are working to do things like materiality assessments or rigorous strategic platform development processes where we, you know, Edelman often works with these companies to develop a position, stance, or set of commitments or areas of focus that are based on research, that are based on what their communities, stakeholders relevant to the industry and business are telling them that is important. And that's how you really help build into the business your commitment. Right. And how it stays authentic to the company. So they're not trying to have engagement on issues that are completely irrelevant to who they are and where they come from. But there's a real resonance between whatever it is they're engaging in and the core values of the company, right? Exactly. And it makes sense when you think about it, because there are so many issues and challenges that we need to solve as a global community. We need the people who are experts in those areas to drive solutions. So it's not as efficient if you have, you know, let's say an apparel company 
working on issues that have no relevance to them, perhaps let's say in the education sphere. It really makes sense for companies to focus obviously first and foremost on their own footprint, what they can control in their own operations, but then use that knowledge that they've gained over decades, if not longer, in their own sectors and their own core competencies to move yeah. the needle on the areas that they can most impact. Right. And they're then able to engage in a way where it's not just about making a donation, but it's actually leveraging all of their assets towards those goals. So looking through their supply chain, looking through their logistics or manpower, other resources they have that they can also right. put into the process. Yes. I think giving and philanthropy will always be an important piece of the puzzle. And it's actually a great way to engage employees, but it has to be aligned and married ideally with systemic changes to the business model, because there are other stakeholders besides just communities or the grantees you're working with or your employees. And we can talk a little bit about that, but other stakeholders like investors, customers, consumers are really driving a lot of this change. Who's driving this so that companies are coming to you and saying, we need your help. And then when you're actually doing the work, who are you working with? Are you working with communications departments, marketing departments? Are you working with CEOs? How do these campaigns or these initiatives that you're working on then get put into the company? Yeah, great question. I think the answer to that first piece about which stakeholders are driving this is all of them. Mm. And I don't mean that as a cop-out answer, but yeah. it's good news yeah. that all of the stakeholders are driving this. So employees, we mentioned before, NGOs have such an important role to keep pushing the envelope, hold companies accountable. Consumers is another big one. From our trust data, we know that Gen Z is a really an important driver of that consumer push. We know that 62% of Gen Z believes that if a brand doesn't communicate actions to address societal issues, they actually assume that the brand is hiding something or doing nothing, which is really interesting. So consumers are a big driver, especially for consumer-facing brands, of course. Um, for all corporations and especially the B2B companies, two stakeholders are, I would say, the main drivers, and those are investors. So you have institutional investors like BlackRock, State Street, who have been pushing their companies to measure risk, embed sustainability and social impact into the business models, but also customers. We hear a lot from our clients, and one example of a client I work with is a big global agricultural commodity and nutrition company. And their focus and a lot of who they hear from, in addition to the investors I just mentioned, are customers. So big food brands that are buying their ingredients or food retailers. And once customers start asking a company to do something, that is the single most important driver that I've seen move the needle in a very tangible way where it's not an abstract, oh, okay, we think consumers might want this. This is very much like the company that's making my cereal that I, I eat in the morning wants me to source specific ingredients in a way that is more sustainable and regenerative. So 
that's a very tangible action that companies can take. In terms of how we work with companies and who we work with, I would say at Edelman, it's about a 50-50 split between working directly with either the head of impact or chief sustainability officer or working with the communications team. And ideally, and in a lot of most cases, we work with both those teams in tandem. And that's really important because the communications team needs the impact and sustainability team to make sure that what they're communicating is accurate and authentic. And we help with that as well using our subject matter knowledge. And, you know, of course, the, the impact and sustainability teams need the communications function to help them reach the stakeholders that they need to drive trust and help with license to operate, but also drive momentum for the programs that they're putting in place. So it's really a nice marriage of those two functions. And it's a really fun collaboration to be a part of. But I suppose in getting to this, there are some kind of barriers that you have to overcome, especially if a company is doing this for the first time. So perhaps the agricultural, you know, there are some companies that we know where they have their ethics like really baked into their company and it's what they've always done, you know, the Ben and Jerry's, the Patagonia's of the world. But now we're having companies that have never really thought about this, having to kind of come out and speak on issues that are quite outside of their day-to-day operations. And of course, we have, particularly in the U.S., this backlash against wokeism and all of that. So when a company is thinking about this, I imagine some of them come in with some trepidation at the beginning. So how do you get them through that? Yes, I would say one of the main concerns we get with companies who are just starting out on this journey is that it feels overwhelming. There are so many issues that they feel that they need to respond to, and there are so many challenges to take on. So where do you even begin as a company? And that's really where the work and the partnership that we do comes into play because we can apply a process to help them understand what are the issues they really need to speak out on? What are the issues they want to be, we call it an activist on, and maybe that's you know more comfortable for some companies than other. What do they just want to be an advocate on? What are those issues where they just want to be in line with what everyone else in the industry is doing? And then what are the issues that maybe they need to be responsive to, whether that is issues they are managing or other sensitive aspects to the business. And so we can really work with them in partnership to understand how do you parse out those issues? And from an action standpoint, what do you take action on? Like we said before, you know, based on stakeholder interviews, things like competitor research, where the company has strengths and knowledge, where should you prioritize your actions? Because you can't take on every issue because otherwise you won't be effective. How do you prioritize the issues that you're going to own and lead out on and take action first and then communicate about those things? So that's a little bit about how you try to solve for that feeling of overwhelm that we hear from so many companies on. And then the ESG woke backlash is another issue that we have been helping a lot of clients navigate. And like I said before, it is primarily coming from the U.S. 
and it's it's frankly a lot of times that the term ESG itself is a distraction. When you talk to companies, a lot of companies are still staying the course in terms of their actions. Some companies have been a little more hesitant to speak out. Uh, we've heard this term called green hushing, which is where companies are you know, reticent to say anything about what they're doing on sustainability or social impact or some of these issues that might be considered woke. I think a lot of that is attributable to this ESG backlash, but it's definitely a phenomenon that we're seeing with our clients. The best way to navigate that is to not speak in generalities, perhaps reconsidering the use of the term ESG itself and be specific when you're talking about what your company is doing. Instead of saying things like we're committed to ESG or you know we're prioritizing ESG, you can say things like we are installing 50 megawatts of solar energy our facility or we have increased diversity in our board by X percent over the past few years. And that really helps your stakeholders understand how your actions are furthering the success of the business and also the impacts of those things on either the environment or community without wading into some of the politics that are coming up. I think also in a way not to be afraid of the backlash. You know, I think if you're going into this with intelligence, with authenticity, you know what you're talking about. It's not just a campaign because everyone else is doing it, that you can stand your ground and you can speak against the backlash and say, this is something we believe in. This is something that is important to all of our stakeholders, right? And I think in today's social media environment, it's scary. <laughs> you know, It's scary because People don't want to alienate clients. They don't want to alienate even their workforce on issues that may be divisive. But I think the way you engage in it can determine your success in that, hopefully. <laughs> yes. And it all comes down to the commitment. And I mentioned talking to your stakeholders about what they need, looking at your supply chain and figuring out where the impact is and where you can make changes that are better for business. A lot of these changes save money for companies, right. which benefits yeah. the company, shareholders, as well as communities and the environment. So if you have done your research, you've based your stance on what you've heard from your most important stakeholders, that gives you the confidence, the data, the intelligence to be able to back up what you're saying. And when things get tough, because we live in a divisive society and you know not everyone is going to like everything that you do, you can feel confident as a company that you are doing the right thing enough to stand your ground. I imagine some of your customers want to know, all right, we're doing this whole thing, you know, we feel good about it, but is it successful? Are we moving the needle? Have we made any impact? Do you guys have some kind of framework that you use for your measuring and evaluation or how do you go about that? That's a great question. 
you know, it's different for every client. We do have frameworks and analytics that we can apply, especially on the communication side, being Edelman, whether that is engagement online, or we also have something called Edelman Trust Management, where we can actually look across different aspects of a company's reputation and measure year over year where they are building trust. And that includes areas such as diversity, equity, and inclusion, sustainability, et cetera. So we at Edelman really use trust overall as that metric of impact, but certainly there are other metrics that we work with clients on, whether that is through other different vendors or on the environmental side, that is becoming quite standardized now where companies have to report their GHG emissions. For example, there's a new legislation coming out of California just a few weeks ago on that. So depending on the issue, we'll work with clients to best measure and evaluate where they're making impact. And then on the stakeholder side, we tend to leverage that trust measurement as a good proxy for whether we're making impact. And I imagine helping them find a way to work that into the narrative of their company, right? Like, or their brand, because I think you want to, you want to tell that story, you know, that um, how these issues are important and how they're changing the way they do business or reinforcing, you know, the way they do business. And, and I think being able to express their core values and what they do, right? Because that's important for a external audience, but also the internal audience. Yes, it's true. A lot of these issues are very complex. So companies really have to act as educators, sharing the knowledge that they've gained over the years, working in these areas and working with stakeholders. And it's not just a one and done, you know, you communicate about something once and then you're through with it. You really have to use the principles of repetition, and you mentioned the word narrative earlier. I think narrative is really important because a lot of times companies are just tempted to say, hey, we did this great thing, you know, full stop. But for a lot of these issues, you really need to explain the context of the issue itself, why it's relevant to your company so that people really understand why you're getting involved and then talk about what you're doing, how you're working with partners, what those proof points are, what the actions you've taken are, and then what still needs to be done. So it's a full story. If you think about a traditional story arc with a beginning, middle, and end that you need to tell as a narrative and you need to continue to talk about it. And a lot of the campaigns or programs that we work with clients on are years long, if not decades long, because they're long running issues that continue to need work, but also you continue to have new stakeholders, like you mentioned internal, you know, new employees coming in who may not have the latest on what the corporate values are, or what you might be doing in a certain area. So ongoing communications built around that narrative are, are the key. Yeah. And on that internal discussion is really linked to recruitment and retention for employees. You know, it's important for them to then be able to share that story when they go home and can talk to their kids about what we're doing at work and how their work is having an impact in their community or having an impact in some of these big issues that maybe their children are learning about in schools. Exactly. 
And I think the key to that, that a lot of companies forget is that we need to keep these stories digestible and simple. Right. Right. And it's hard when you're a company and you have to report out all of this data. I think you can get tripped up on that and forget that humans don't really retain a lot of that. <laughs> and I think, you know, one thing that I've been talking about lately with colleagues of mine is how do we humanize these stories of impact? Hmm. How do we put hmm. human faces to these stories? And I think that's an area where companies have a lot of potential great stories that they might not be thinking about, whether that's how their own employees are helping drive this impact. We work with a large outdoor retailer on their circular product platform. And one of the most successful stories we've been able to tell with them is how they have trained their design team on these principles of sustainability and how the designers are experiencing that and how they are impacting at a huge scale an apparel system through the principles of design. And we could have told that story by saying, we saved X amount of pounds or tons of fabric going to the landfill and bury people with numbers. But we've really had a lot of success focusing on that human element. And I think that's how you can solve and get a lot of good progress on engagement, whether it's employees, consumers, et cetera. So that's something to keep in mind. Where do you see this issue going in the next 10 to 20 years? How are brands evolving? There was recently an article, you probably saw it saying that brands are starting to pull back from engagement. And, you know, I've talked to other people who said the genie's out of the bottle and there's no going back now. But, you know, I'm curious from your experience where you think we will be on these kind of things in the next 10 or 20 years. I think the genie is out of the bottle. A lot of companies are moving ahead swiftly. No plans that I can tell of slowing down, which is great. That's what we need. I think what I'm going to be watching is a lot of companies and brands have made commitments that are coming due in 2025. And it'll be interesting to see where we are at that midpoint. We're on this fast track of the decade of action with the sustainable development goals you know, being due in 2030. And the consensus is that we are not by any stretch far enough along on any of those SDGs. And so we really need urgent action. And I think companies are now, they've now built the systems, the infrastructure for them to take that action, which is really encouraging. So I'm hoping that we're going to see an acceleration of the current actions that are already underway to be able to catch up and make a lot of that progress that's been on the global docket, so to say, for these important issues. So an important decade ahead for the SDGs, climate action included. Because corporations are now such important actors and CEOs even are becoming kind of celebrities in their own rights that people are turning to them. You know, the point that we touched on at the beginning that there's this level of trust in these people as opposed to government and media and other places. And so I think that you guys have documented this trend in your report, and I think it'd be interesting to see how it continues to evolve. But I think that because we have such big companies where 
you could go almost anywhere in the world and ask who Mark Zuckerberg is or Elon Musk or whatever, and people would know, which is kind of astounding. I don't think that, you know, even 20 or 50 years ago, you could go somewhere remote and ask for any CEO's name. (laughs) But I really agree with you. And I think that not only is it a demand of the stakeholders, but it's a demand of the time because we're facing such catastrophic issues in so many areas, whether it's healthcare or the environment or education or, you know, just basic human rights. Corporations have to be involved and have to engage and stand for what's right. So I'm hoping the trend is on the rise as well. Emily, before I let you go, I've got two wrap-up questions, if you don't mind. The first one is, I'd love it if you could give a shout-out to a brand or a company that you feel is doing exceptional work in the activism space. Yeah, I have a shout-out, and it's a little bit of a different shout-out for a brand that's doing what I would call something interesting in this space, and that is Lego. And I think you may have seen the news in past weeks that they have actually announced that they are abandoning a plan to use recycled plastic for its bricks. And so you might be thinking, why is that exceptional work in the activism space? But to me, it really stands out because what they did was they were honest and vulnerable about where they were in their process. They were honest because they said they looked at the science and the numbers, and they said that using a recycled plastic was actually going to lead to higher emissions. So that's certainly something that they would not want to do, but they also were proactive about sharing this information that in some respects could be considered a quote unquote failure, you know, going back on something that they committed to. But I think it's really interesting to think about that as an example of how to be transparent, how to be vulnerable as a company when you maybe fall short of what people are expecting of you. It doesn't mean that we want to give companies the excuse to fall short or not meet their commitments. That's definitely not what we want to encourage, but we do want to encourage transparency and we do want to encourage companies to be vulnerable and talk about the real challenges that they're having on the way to making some of these changes. Because without that honesty and transparency, we just kind of get stuck in a performative space where we're not really solving issues. So I thought that the way that they communicated that was admirable and very interesting. So I'll be curious to see if that trend continues, but that stuck out in my mind. It's a great precedent. And thinking about Lego, I can only think that they're a company of creative people. So if this solution didn't work, they're going to find something else. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I picture them, you know, in a a workshop tinkering away with with Legos, (laughs) which I I don't know if that's the reality, but I agree. I I imagine there's some ingenuity back there and I'm excited to hear where they might go next. Yeah, no, they're definitely one of the leaders in the space and doing great work. So that's a very good shout out. And then finally, is there something that's made you laugh recently? I love this question. I think with everything going on in the world, we need laughter. One thing that has made me laugh recently is actually a show on Netflix. It's called Old Enough. And it is a Japanese documentary based on a tradition, I believe it translates to first errand. 
and it's where Japanese families will send kids as young as I think two or three years old on errands around the neighborhood. Ah. And as you can imagine with kids that young, going on the journey with them is pretty hilarious. Um, <laughs> they get sidetracked on some pretty interesting endeavors, even just with simple errands, you know, running to the market to get curry <laughs> or, you know, dropping something off at a friend's house. So I would highly recommend that is very endearing and very lighthearted and truly has made me laugh during some past weeks where we've had a lot of turmoil and tragedy going on in the world. So, so it's called old enough called old enough. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll put some links in the show notes as well. And so Emily, I'm going to let you go, but I just want to thank you so much for joining me today on the corporate activist. And it's been a fascinating conversation and I really appreciate all of the experience and ideas that you've shared today. I think everyone will have learned a lot. Thank you for having me, Siri. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Corporate Activist. Please stay tuned for future episodes and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on X and Instagram at Corp Activist. We'd love to hear from you. And if you have questions of your own or need some advice about corporate activism, social impact, and political engagement, please send them our way and we will respond in future episodes. The Corporate Activist is brought to you by Stance Advocacy Services and is produced by the good people at the Podcast Boutique. I'm your host, Siri Kalsa. Ciao for now.